If you have your Bibles with you, I'd invite you to turn with me this morning uh, to the book of John, the Gospel of John, chapter 8. You don't have to have a Bible in your hand. You can use your phone. Uh, we do have some Bibles on the back table. If you would like to follow along, uh, I'll be referring back to our passage this morning, but you'll see it briefly for a time on the screen behind me as well. We are 26 weeks. It was hard to believe, but I counted them up because I was curious. Uh, but we're 26 weeks into our study of the Gospel of John. It's kind of what we do here at Ascension, is we just go chapter by chapter, verse by verse, and uh, talk about what God is teaching us here. And we've been studying John's account of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. And this is our 26th week in the book. It's our fourth week in this chapter alone, chapter Eight. Now we're going to finish up the chapter uh, today. There's been a lot in chapter 8. Uh, we could have spent a lot of more time in chapter 8 than we've done. Uh, but we're going to finish the chapter today and we're also going to pause uh, the study of the book of John for the rest of the year as we move next week into uh, Advent. And uh, next week is the first Sunday of Advent and so we'll be switching our focus uh, accordingly uh, but for today, we're going to finish John chapter 8 before we hang it up uh, for a month or so. For those of you who are visiting who haven't been with us uh, in this study, uh, let me just um, kind of bring you up to speed, not through a whole summary of the first seven chapters that would take too long, but let me just say this, Jesus um, uh, is in Jerusalem at this time, uh, he's been there for some time for uh, the last several weeks that we've uh, been looking at John chapter 8, uh, his ministry on earth is in full swing. Uh, after you know the first 30 years of Jesus' life, uh, growing, maturing, glorifying God, it was you know when he turned 30 that he began to really engage uh, his calling. And uh, so we're sometime, somewhere in that period of, uh, of you know, post-30 before age 33, and his age will become important um, later in this passage. But gone are the days of Jesus flying under the radar. Uh, at this point in Jesus' ministry, um, Jesus himself is becoming uh, widely known in the region there in the first century. And, and we could say he's, being, uh, he's become widely known and, and somewhat loved <laughs> and widely hated as well. And most recently he's been engaged in this last chapter, uh, in conversation with the Jews. He's engaged all sorts of people, but lately he's been engaged with the Jews, the religious of his day, who saw his words and his actions as an affront to their beliefs and to their practices. So as we pick up where we left off last week in John chapter 8, you are going to feel uh, the temperature rising in the room. It's been rising for some time, uh, but it really rises this week as Jesus' words become much more plain, much more scathing. He's already told them things like, they will die in their sins without Him. They are enslaved and only he can set them free. And they think they serve God, but they're actually serving the devil. The temperature is rising through what he says, and today it comes to a boiling point. 
So listen as I read John chapter 8, uh, finishing out the chapter, verses 48 through 59. It's our tradition here at Ascension for you to stand with me for the reading of God's Word. And so if you are able to do that, we invite you to do that. John chapter 8, verses 48 through 59. Listen as I read. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my Father, and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory, there is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets, and yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died, and the prophets who died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say, he is our God. But you have not known him, I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you, but I do know him and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old and yet you have seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, Before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. It was a little difficult to try to distill this passage this week, but I think think it teaches and reminds us of at least two things this morning that I want to unpack with you. I think these Jews that Jesus illustrate, excuse me, these Jews that Jesus interacts with illustrate for us the world that we live in. And I think Jesus, our Savior, models for us our response to that world. So two truths to organize our thoughts this morning. The first one is this. Jesus frustrates the world of unbelief. Jesus frustrates the world of unbelief. Some of you likely remember a story that came out of Great Britain just about a a year ago. Isabel Vaughn Spruce A Catholic woman was arrested outside an abortion clinic in Birmingham for praying, for silently praying. The charge, the official charge, was protesting and engaging in an act that is intimidating to service users, which was particularly interesting because At the time of her arrest, the abortion clinic was was closed. It was an eye-opening news story for Christians around the world. I remember when it happened. 
making us wonder about what kinds of things might be headed our way. Now, thankfully, uh, the charges against her have been dropped. The police have apologized, and the UK Home Secretary has determined that praying, particularly praying in your heart, not even out loud, is not a crime. And yet I think the event gets at the reality of our world. And unfortunately, what indeed may be coming for us at some point. See, so often the teachings of Jesus are not just disagreed with. They frustrate those who don't believe them. And those that do believe in Jesus, those that do claim to follow Him, have often become a punching bag of mockery. Even the mere presence of those who represent Him can trigger a response with some. That's the reality of what Jesus is facing here in John chapter 8. Jesus has been traveling around. He's been speaking Uh, Like no one has ever spoken before with an authority that was out of this world. He's been doing things that no one has ever done with a power that is not of this world. And he's been doing these things in order to reveal who he is, what he came to do, with the final proof still to come after his death. But these Jews who have been engaged with him recently, they're just... They're they're not getting it. They're not understanding what he's about. It's not sinking in. They don't have the humility. They don't have the faith to really see him. And so in their unbelief, and in this passage that John gives to us, that the Holy Spirit preserved for us, uh, they reveal two things. They reveal their disdain for Jesus and their hardness of heart towards the things of God. And I want to look at those two things real briefly under this first point, that Jesus frustrates the world of unbelief. First, their disdain. After a long back and forth that we looked at over the past couple weeks, uh, this passage begins with a question, a question that's really not a question, it's a statement. And it's not just a statement, it's an insult. Verse 48 Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and you have a demon? Apparently, they have lobbed this Jesus' way already. I picture the question being asked and either some snarky giggles being made or some hushed moans when it's asked. Now, the accusation of being possessed by a demon was, was nothing new. They'd accused Jesus of that before, and it reflected their supernatural worldview that accounted for this kind of thing, and that was a good thing. But it also represented and reflected their assumption that a Jewish man spewing such claims was out of his mind and clearly possessed by something else. But this Samaritan slam, this was a new slam. We don't find this anywhere else 
in the Gospels. We've talked a little bit uh, about the history of Israel and Samaria. Remember, uh, the Samaritans were the hated half-breeds to the north. The despised neighbors. And Jesus had interacted with one notably at the well not too long ago. So what was their thinking in calling him this, in asking this question? It was a statement that Jesus had abandoned his Jewish roots, that Jesus wasn't a true Israelite. And even more than that, you fans of of logic, you would call this an ad hominem fallacy. What's an ad hominem fallacy? Well, here's how it's defined. This fallacy occurs when instead of addressing someone's argument or position, you attack the person. You see, as a result of this conversation that they're having with Jesus being confronted with his claims, his argumentation, and his proof about who he is, they have nothing left to say and they're just frustrated, and so they mock him. They deride him. They categorize him as a crazy crazy traitor, thinking that that accomplishes something. Well, what about now? seems like our world is increasingly disinterested in engaging with the truth. And instead, it likes to shout. It likes to ridicule the things of Christ. Some of you may have experienced this before in your own lives. It's a reminder to not be surprised. It's a reminder that Jesus frustrates the world of unbelief. But there's another aspect of this unbelief that I want you to see in the passage. It's the the hardness of heart, the lack of spiritual understanding that is evident, not just their disdain, but their hardness. You remember that Jesus, a, a few chapters back, he had stated to these very people, or actually in this chapter, in verse 15, you judge according to the flesh. And then in verse 23, you are of this world and I am not of this world. And the point I made and the point I think Jesus makes is that they were operating, they are thinking on a very different plane than Jesus. Right? Jesus was from heaven. Jesus was filled with the Spirit. That's how He was thinking. They are from the earth. They are from the dust. They are living according to their flesh. And therefore, they have no capacity for the things of God. Their pride is firmly in the way. And as a result, they're stuck in this human, literal understanding of everything that Jesus has been trying to say, everything that Jesus is about. And they, in this passage, they illustrate it at least three times. First, on their assumption that Jesus is out for himself. That he's on some attention-grabbing tour in first century Galilee. You see, Jesus perceives that this is what's behind their questioning. He brings up this fact in verse 50, that he's not out for his own glory. It's actually the Father that desires to glorify him. Jesus' ministry has never been about self-promotion, 
But these Jews, in their unbelief, can't even conceive of the fact that his motive might be different than self-promotion. And they're stuck, failing to see who he really is. And the second instance is their response to Jesus' statement about death in verse 51. If anyone keeps my word, Jesus says, he will never taste death. And how do they respond? Their response reveals that they think he's talking about earthly death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets who died? But Jesus isn't talking about earthly death. He's talking about a greater death. He's talking about the second death. He's not talking about the death that is a common lot for all of us, but he's talking about that death which is eternal separation from God, that death that doesn't have to be experienced. Because through Jesus, it can be avoided. But their hearts and their pride are intent on finding things against him rather than being open and soft to the truth. And there's one more instance of this spiritual blindness in verse 57. Jesus has said that Abraham rejoiced in his day. Well, unpack that statement in just a moment. And the Jews, they don't know what he's talking about. With their limited earthly understanding, they handle it as if Jesus is claiming to be Abraham's contemporary, right? They bring up his age. You're not old enough for that, Jesus. Come on, you're, you're not even 50. All this confusion, all this frustration, all this mocking that follows results in this question, verse 53. Who do you make yourself out to be? Or in other words, we might say, just Who do you think you are, Jesus? They disdain him, and in their hardness of heart and the blindness of their pride, they have no understanding for the things of God and for the things that he's speaking of. Jesus frustrates the world of unbelief. And at the end of the day, it's a frustration that boils to the point of violence. Right? The prescribed punishment for blasphemy in the Old Testament was indeed stoning. And so the Jews were doing what was according to the law, though the law never prescribed mob violence. It was always to be done justly with a trial. So they pick up stones to silence him and to kill him. But even in that, they are frustrated. He disappears. And the focal point of their energy is now gone. Who is this? And that's where we turn our attention to next. To Jesus' shocking claims about himself and to our response to those claims. So the second truth that I want to talk about for the next few minutes is not just that Jesus frustrates the world of unbelief, but that the truth of Jesus is still the invitation. The truth of Jesus is still the invitation. 
And what I mean by that is that a world of unbelief doesn't change the message, but it does. It ought to deepen the compassion. A frustrating world of unbelief doesn't change the message, but it ought to deepen the compassion, namely our compassion. See, I want us to see Jesus' response to this opposition as both revealing of his character and instructing us, his people, the church, those of you who know and love him here this morning. Notice Jesus responds in loving truth to their mockery. He doesn't mock them back, nor does he back down from his claims. Notice, too, that Jesus responds with an invitation, with a gracious invitation. Let me explain. As we jump back into the story Notice, as I've said before, the temperature is rising, and yet Jesus is staying calm. He's staying calm while he speaks incisive truth. He doesn't mince words. He simply says, I do not have a demon. You're wrong. And this has never been about me, but about the Father, and about the Father's will. And to insult me is to dishonor Him, Him who is the judge of all mankind. So in other words, very carefully, very truthfully, Jesus says, be careful what you say. And He then continues and He brings up, following their bringing up of Abraham, he, he makes this incredible statement in verse 56. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. Now what Jesus is saying, matter of factly and plainly to these Jews, is what the writer of the Hebrews states for us, New Covenant believers, in Hebrews 11.13. There the writer of the Hebrews is speaking about Abraham and Sarah, and he says this, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. So, so what did Abraham see? Abraham saw the sending of the Messiah. He didn't know his name, but he believed the promise. And that was not only his joy, but that was his salvation. Just last month, I sat with several of the men in this room, those who have been nominated to office here at Ascension. And we talked about this from Westminster, the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 8. It's one of our confessions, one of our historical documents that helps summarize the scriptures. And I wanted to read it to you. It says this, although the work of redemption was not actually done by Christ until after his incarnation, yet the power, effectiveness, and benefits of it were given to all the elect in all ages from the beginning of the world by means of those promises, types, 
sacrifices which revealed him and indicated that he would be the seed of the woman, would bruise the serpent's head, and was the lamb slain from the beginning of the world. What is that saying? What is that teaching? It's saying that all the Old Testament saints were saved through faith in Jesus. As they looked to the promise, Abraham saw and he believed. Abraham's whole life was a shadow of what was to come. The provision of a son that would be a blessing to the nations. God's provision of a ram caught in the thicket as the Lord had tested his faith. Would he be willing to give his firstborn son See, Jesus is the fulfillment of Abraham's hopes and dreams. Jesus is his Savior. Abraham's Savior. Abraham's salvation. You can imagine how scandalous that was to the Jews. But Jesus takes it one step further. It's not just that Abraham rejoiced in him, but before Abraham was, I am. We've talked about the I am statements that are part of John. We've already looked at a couple of them in these first opening chapters. They're statements that Jesus uses to associate himself with the divine self-revelation of God that he gives to Moses in Exodus chapter 3, verse 14. But this statement here, this, this is an absolute one, Right? That there's no metaphor attached to it like I am the bread of life. Nor is it veiled like it was in chapter 6 when he walked on water. Jesus is unashamedly here claiming to be the eternal God. Transcendent over time. Uncreated with no beginning or no end. Not just before Abraham I was, but before Abraham I was. I came across this great phrase this week in my reading that helps describe this. Jesus is is essentially saying, I am not a being that existed or exists. I am existence. This is the loving truth of who Jesus is. And he states it plainly. Here to those who mock him, to those who oppose him. And he invites us, his church, his followers, to stand firmly in it as well. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. No one, no matter how earnest, no matter how religious, no one comes to the Father except through him. You see, the application, I think, of this passage is I wrestled with what is it here for? Why did the Holy Spirit preserve it? Why did the Holy Spirit give it to us, His church? I think the application here is not just to know Jesus more. Although I hope and pray that this does just that. As your view of Jesus gets even even larger and more grandiose and more majestic, And maybe even introduces you to Jesus for the first time. Because you're just examining the claims of Christ and you don't really know a lot about Him. I think the application also 
is to view the mockers, the frustrated, the spiritually ignorant, those who we might call our spiritual enemies, as our mission field. Not simply as a group to get frustrated at ourselves, but as those who are bent, those who are broken, those who are in need of truth. And that's why I say the truth of Jesus is still the invitation. I've already read the verse, but Jesus in verse 51 says this in loving truth. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. They're about to pick up stones and try to kill him. Jesus can feel the anger. He can feel the frustration in the room, but he's still speaking to them in hopes that they will turn to him. He won't shy away from his demands. They must honor the Son. They must honor him or receive the judgment from, of the Father. But perhaps they aren't lost yet. The last verse of Psalm 2 comes to mind, verse 12 of Psalm 2, where it says, Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way, for His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are those who take refuge in Him. You see, Jesus longs that they might know the refuge that is in Him. And so two two questions of application For all of you in this room, first of all, do you know this Jesus? Do you know this refuge from God's judgment? You must have a heart that is not too proud, but sees your need, your genuine need of a Savior. You must have a heart that is not too earthly to believe the unbelievable. That God would love you so much that He would send His only Son in order that your sin, in order that your guilt might be cleansed. That you might not experience death. The second death. Christmas music has already begun in our house Weeks ago, actually, sorry to those purists who don't like Christmas music pre-Thanksgiving. But one of the songs that's been playing and only plays this time of year is that song, Mary, Did You Know? You know that song? It begins, did you know that your baby boy would one day walk on water? The child that you delivered will soon deliver you. How could Mary understand the depths of those things? I mean, she knew something, but she didn't know. And yet, in humility, in humility, she stepped out in faith with the things that she did know. And Jesus calls you to do the same, to find refuge in Him. And if you're here this morning and and you do know Jesus and you've walked with Jesus for years as I have, 
then my question to you is, can you stand firm in the truth while lovingly inviting others to do the same? Jesus has challenged us with this again and again in his life. And maybe this application was just for me, because my answer is I can stand in the truth. I'm a truth teller. But a loving invitation to mockers, that's hard for me. Let the mockers perish. Who cares about the mockers? I need the compassion. I need the patience of Jesus. Sure, the mockers might continue to mock. Some will. They might even pick up stones. But perhaps, perhaps they might see. Perhaps they might believe. Perhaps they might find refuge in Him and escape death. The unbelief of the world can be frustrating, no doubt. But the truth of Jesus is still the invitation that we hold out. May God give us the grace. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank You for these challenging words from our Savior We thank You for His character, His majestic character before Abraham was. I am, Jesus says. We thank You that the One who existed before the beginning of this world has made Himself nothing, taking the form of a servant and being made in the likeness of man, humbled Himself the point of death even death on a cross. Father, we are no more deserving than our neighbor who doesn't understand, who in the hardness of his heart mocks and ridicules. Father, may we stand firm in the truth. May we hold out the words of life even to them. Even to those. And may You, Holy Spirit, do Your work in those who come in contact with these words of life. Oh, that all might know the peace and the joy and the hope that can come only through Jesus, the One who has conquered death. And so, Father, take these words, plant them deeply in our hearts, More than that, plant them in our lives as we live as your servants, as we live as your sons and daughters. This I pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.